Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samaroff. And of course, me, Tom Lash. I'm excited. We have had a bit of a mare getting the show on the road today. We have. It's all right now as free have uh, immortalised. We have got a very extra special guest. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. David, David Kelly from the Atlas Society. Um, say hello, um, David. Hello, Anthony, Tom, and everyone listening in. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience. Yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe before we get going, you could just tell everyone who doesn't know a little bit about the Atlas Society and what you do. Well, the Atlas Society is um, a nonprofit organization that I founded uh, in 1990. <clears throat> to promote Ayn Rand's philosophy <clears throat> of objectivism. Uh, our name comes, of course, from Atlas Shrugged, her mm -hmm. major um, magnum opus work. And what we do is uh, produce commentary about political and cultural events in the world from an objectivist standpoint. We have educational material for the many people who want to learn more about this philosophy. And we um, are, are eager um, to um, inform a whole new generation of people, of young people, about Ayn Rand and, and her works. Mm -hmm. So um, contrary to some people who approach uh, free market or libertarian ideas, um, Objectivism is, you know, a thick philosophy. Some some libertarians just think that liberty is about, you know, the non-aggression principle. Don't hit people. Don't take their stuff. Whereas there's a lot more to objectivism than just that. So could you briefly, just for those who don't know, give a quick summary of what the philosophy of objectivism is all about? Um, yes. The um, <clears throat> the re. Uh, as objectivists, we we don't think that you can uh, treat uh, the non-initiation of force or non-aggression principle as a kind of axiom because mm. it's it's a political uh, mm. principle, and politics just is not the foundational level of philosophy. It's based on uh, ethics, um, and so you need you need to provide a moral case for why freedom is good, right. and objectivism does that through um, the emphasis on reason, first of all, that we are rational animals and reason is the capacity that, that gives us everything we have, uh, And but it is a faculty of the individual. There is no mm. collective mind. So uh, for that reason, people need the freedom to act on their own independent judgment. Um, and secondly, Ayn Rand, and this is what she's probably best known for and notorious to some mm. people, yeah. uh, holds that your own life and have an individual's own life and happiness is the ultimate goal. Right. And so she rejected the moral code of altruism that says we must serve our brothers, so to speak, or be mm. our brother's keepers. Mm. Um, she was all for benevolence and trade. Um, we are social animals, but mm. we are not collective animals in that sense. And so there again, people need the freedom to choose uh, to set their goals and act in uh, to support their own lives and achieve their own happiness um, by the best 
by their own best sure. judgment, going back to reason again. And when you put it that way, it's, it's hard. It doesn't exactly sound like a extraordinarily shocking revelation, you know, the idea that your own life belongs to you and, and you should pursue your own happiness um, since, you know, you're given this one life. But, and yet there's a lot of antipathy and outright hostility towards Anne Rand and her ideas. And, you know, one of the things that really annoys me about when you read critics of Anne Rand on the internet, they don't really seem to understand um, her ideas. Um, and most of the criticism is dealt to her character uh, rather than, yes. um, you know, a serious discussion of her arguments. And one manifestation of that is I don't think that um, Anne Rand has been taken very seriously as a philosopher in the academy and philosophy official. And one of the extra mm. reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, uh, David, is because you're, you are a philosopher, you've been a university lecturer, I believe, and you're familiar with the history of, of philosophy. And I, I, was, I was thinking that you could really fill us in on some important things about you know, where, where Rand got it right that other people might not have and, uh, and so forth. So uh, why do you think that Anne Rand has not been seriously <clears throat> discussed in philosophy officialdom? Do you think it's because she wasn't in the academy herself or she was for capitalism or for other reasons? Well, I think uh, both, um, uh, both of those are true. Uh, she is disliked, or you know, by, by most uh, philosophers, partly for the content of mm. what she advocated, namely individualism and selfishness. She was not afraid to use mm. that word, um, and also laissez-faire capitalism. Mm. So <clears throat> these are not exactly um, <clears throat> popular calling cards in the uh, academy, at least not in the humanities. Mm. And so that's the content side, but also in terms of method. Mm -hmm. Uh, she did not write in an academic style. Philosophy in the 20th century especially has, and into the 21st has become a highly technical field mm. with narrow specializations. Uh, the, to be in the academy, you really have to be, get into that conversation and speak their language. Uh, I, I know in my own experience going through graduate school and then writing my first book you know, in epistemology, mm. uh, I had to work very, very hard to bring my context as an objectivist thinker mm. and the principles of epistemology that Rand uh, discovered mm. to bring to 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 connect that in some way with the context of other philosophers in um, in contemporary discussions about knowledge. So um, it it's it's almost like speaking two different languages. And however, uh, the people in philosophy tend, in academic philosophy, tend to think of her as a quote-unquote pop philosopher. Mm, okay. She wrote novels. Mm. Um, her essays were very broad brush and did not go into the kind of academic detail. Now, some of the people who have taken up her ideas, like myself, can do that, have done that. But... Um, it, still, there's um, enough opposition, and it's it's, it's kind of hard for an objectivist still <laughs> to um, make a, a successful career in philosophy. Some have, there are some, yes, and it's changing slowly, but it's still hard. So, wasn't there a, 
to a certain extent, was there some degree of academic or intellectual snobbery involved? I mean, is, is academia almost a closed shop in a certain degree? Oh, you have never met such provincial slobs as uh, snobs, rather. <laughs> Some of them are few slobs as well. <laughs> Sorry for the Freudian slip. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, there's a, a great deal of snobbishness, and it, it, I, I see it in, in all fields. Um, I mean, academics are kind of notorious for that. If you if you're not an intellectual, um, you are uh, an not one of us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. and we and we can just dismiss you out of hand without actually dealing with your arguments. So, as someone who is on the inside and you're you're familiar with the uh, history of philosophy, what were Rand's unique and new contributions to philosophy um, that hadn't occurred to other people beforehand that you think are you know important? <clears throat> well, I would mention. Um, two that I think are the most important and most fundamental. Uh, one is on the issue of um, how values can be objective, right. how they can have factual basis. And for that, she gave an analysis in terms of um, the, the nature of, of life, and, that, and this would be true of all living creatures, all organisms. Um, they can maintain their lives only by um, acting to provide for their needs and they have the capacity to do that if they fail they die so right. there is living things face the alternative of life or death existence or non-existence and that is her analysis of of what what the, the factual root of the concept of value is and principles of value so i think that's one very important thing um, it, it, there are, you can find, if you look back in, in the history of philosophy, you can find some suggestions in that direction. Aristotle, for example, was very aware of, uh, uh, you know, the, the organic nature of, of life, all, all life and human life in particular. He was a great biologist, but no one developed it so quite so clearly and um, uh, with the rigor that Rand did. So that, that's one thing. The other thing is her view of knowledge and what objectivity is in the first place. Mm. People um, prior to Rand and still common today is the idea of, well, there's objective reality and there's subjective mental life. And yeah. uh, if you're, for knowledge to be objective, it has to mirror reality in some way. It can't be wrong. Uh, whereas she said, no. Objectivity means grasping re facts in a conceptual mode that is our unique um, cognitive faculty. So knowledge or perception, all forms of knowledge from perception up through concept formation, uh, reasoning, scientific theories, always are the result of a process that starts with what's out there in reality, but is gives us um, our mental contents in a form that our faculties are prepared to deliver. I mean, it's in that way, our cognition is any, like any other biological system, like digestion. Hmm. You know? I mean, you put food in your mouth and somehow <clears throat> uh, 
um, hamburgers and french fries turn into amino acids and <laughs> all these proteins and stuff that your body uses, mm. um, well, the mind does the same thing. Um, we, we look at reality, to take example, um, uh, we are human beings, all of us. We use the concept man or human to describe all of us. I say, Anthony, you're a man. Tom, you're a man. I'm saying exactly the same thing about you. Um, but you're not the same entity. You're not even alike in every way. Yeah. Hmm. Right? You have different properties. So we're abstracting. That's our right. human mode. But it's valid because it has a foundation in similarities. You... Yeah. Right. And uh, one of the things I've heard is that Ayn Rand was the first philosopher to say that concept formation is objective. What does that mean, and uh, uh, that concept formation is objective, and how can we make use of, of that knowledge in our day-to-day -day life? Uh, what she meant by that is um, she was contrasting concept, human concepts and concept formation with two alternative theories. One is, to use, stay with my example of human, uh, some philosophers like Plato thought that if a concept, an abstract term, is to be objective, it must actually stand for an abstract thing out there in reality. In his case, they were forms. forms. Other philosophers like Aristotle said, well, the forms are actually in the things, but still there's a literal essence of things that our mind latches onto in some intuitive way. Mm. <clears throat> so that's called, that's what Rand called intrinsicism, because yeah. it says that knowledge is, in, our, the, uh, <clears throat> the content of knowledge is just intrinsic to reality. We just open our eyes, our mental eyes, and see it. The other alternative is subjectivism, which says that, um, in the case of concept formation, this would be a nominalist view, that, well, we just make up our words. We can give them any definition we want. They're all based on similarities, but there are a million different similarities we can slice and dice mm. and classify any way we want. There's no yeah. real foundation mm. in reality. Yeah. And so true for you, not necessarily true for me, that kind of thing. And that's, yeah. that's the ultimate consequence, yes, exactly. Um, so that's, um, that's the theory. Now, the practice is... Um, Gee, as a teacher of logic, I could think of lots of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, people, think of how often people talk past each other using a word that they think obviously stands for X or Y or mm -hmm. X type of things or Y type of things. And they don't stop to say, okay, how did you form that concept and why, why is your concept different from mine? We're right. using the same word. Liberty um, would be a great one for those of us who yes. care about free markets. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect example, yes. Uh, liberty, I, in fact, I wrote a book about the uh, welfare state, um, trying to trace how the concepts of liberty, freedom, rights, and um, coercion yeah. evolved from classical liberalism to modern, at least in the U.S., it's mm -hmm. called modern liberalism. Uh, where, you know, you're not free if you're hungry. Right, right. Um, okay. So, so that, uh, nature yeah. must have been oppressing human beings for thousands and thousands of years. Um, yes. We, yeah, nature was oppressing them. 
Define what you mean by oppression. Uh, Now, what's in my concept of oppression? You know, something like exploitation is a great word because usually I've thought about, you know, the what people mean when they say exploitation, well, usually they either mean um, theft, fraud, or then they they sneak another thing in, which is someone is benefiting from an interaction, but not as much as I think they should be benefiting, therefore they're (laughs) being exploited, you know, um, like someone working in a factory where they might be getting paid three to six times what they would get paid if they weren't working in that factory. And but, yet, but then I exploit my employer's need for to fill a, a lab, you know, to for labour. You ex, you're yeah, exploit his need to, for labour by <laughs> by just being by just being employed by him. I only get a, you know he only he needs to have an employee, so I'm exploiting that need. You're exploiting your employer's need, so yeah. so you can slice it different ways. Yep. And, yes. Uh, and and That's people. Very good point, Tom. <laughs> People get. Um, I'm doing my best. To yeah, keep that's up. pretty good. Like people get, but the, the people get away with not making a case by using words that have yes. emotional resonance. So I can just say, well, that's just exploitation without having neatly defined what I mean with exploitation. And so, right. so is this? Does this tie into? Um, how concept formation is objective because I'm not quite sure if I get the idea yet and if I don't quite, okay yeah so let's take um, <clears throat> let's take um, well, let's stay with exploitation <clears throat> it, Literally, it would mean, I mean, it's actually kind of a vague word because Mm -hmm. you can exploit opportunities, and that's good. That's good. Um, Exploit resources? Exploit resources, um, sure. Uh, But when people use it in the sense we're talking about, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're exploiting people. Now, that, the the court, that's a, becomes a normative term, and it it has a a, um, content of, you're unfair. Mm-hmm. You're not yeah. treating people fairly. So built into that use of the word is some standard of fairness. Right. And people who are individualists and libertarians say it's fair if it's voluntary. Right. And both sides benefit by their own judgment. Um, so employer, employee, if you accept a job at the wage, you're not being exploited. Um, neither is your employer. You're, you are making a deal. Uh, but if your standard of fairness is equality, for example, right. or some limits on on wealth, or uh, you know, the lots of other things, or um, men and women have to be given, you know, treated the same wage. Now, mm-hmm. I think that is fair, but it's um, uh, again, it can be voluntary. I mean, it's women doesn't have to accept a job at a lower pay. So um, that's a case where we say. What, where does the concept of exploitation come from? Well, it depends conceptually on a prior concept of fairness, right. a prior standard of fairness, right. and that's built in. So right. if two people disagree about whether X or Y is a case of exploitation, they have to go back it's to back what step. standard of fairness are you using? Not to philosophize midstream. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Uh, uh, so, so. I, I knew you'd find an excuse to get your <laughs> Anne Rand impersonation in at some point. Well, if we are to justify capitalism in this podcast, then it will be necessary <laughs> for me to put forward my Anne Rand impression. Okay. So, anyway. That's very good, Anthony. I, Thank I, you. I, I mean, it's pretty spot on. Yeah. Now, it's almost spooky. By the way, I think he's channeling her, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> Digression. Have you seen my CEO, um, Jennifer Grossman, okay. uh, does a does a Rand impersonation? Okay. Uh, got the accent and everything. We have a couple of videos oh, on. Oh man, we've got uh, a well, it is the sincerest form of flattery, apparently. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so we haven't seen it. Now we'll check that. We'll, is we'll is, is it available? It on, uh, can we see a video of it somewhere? Oh yeah, it's on our the Atlas oh, Society right. Facebook page. Okay. You yeah. heard it here first, so if you're yeah. tuning in, uh, you're going to have to check out that impression and uh, rate it against mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, okay, now I'm starting to finally get the idea that concept formation is objective now. So she's uh, posits uh, in an introduction to objectivist epistemology that a bigger concept is formed out of a smaller concept up as well. So we can have, like, say, man, but in that might be animals, and in that might be life forms, and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And is that the element that's subjective, the fact that this is how humans perceive the world? No, it's not subjective. Sorry, um, objective, it, I meant. Objective, yes, um, because form the concept of of man by noticing similarities among people they talk they walk they laugh they have a certain mm -hmm. shape uh, within within a range of shapes uh, yeah. um, and we can differentiate them from dogs and giraffes and everything else uh, but then then we notice that uh, between humans and dogs and giraffes there's a, a broader similarity they're living right there and they they're they're animals, meaning they have, they can move around, and in the in these two examples, they have some form of consciousness, conscious perception. Okay. And then we can broaden it further to organism, because even plants have are alive, and they have to do things to stay alive. So then we get to the widest, broadest concept of all. Now we can also subdivide. For example, uh, uh, I am a philosopher. Right. A philosopher is a narrower category mm. of human beings. Uh, sure. Okay. Probably good there aren't many more of us. But are you a but philosopher when you're not philosophizing? By profession, yes. Okay. Um, okay. 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 Sorry, I didn't mean to throw us a wrench in there. It was just an ep epistemological question. <laughs> like, you know, am I a podcaster when I'm not podcasting? I guess... So, so. That's I would a, say so. You'd say I so. I mean, that's your job. That's your job. You you have an uh, an occupation or avocation of broadcasting regularly, mm. so um, you are. Isn't that just a description of a behavior that we then attach to as an identity? Is that not just a feature of how we conceptualize? Is that objectively true? Uh, yes. In this case, when when you use a noun broadcaster mm -hmm. um, that noun is itself dependent on the on the action the verb okay. broadcasting 
um, and it means someone who regularly does that. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's partly um, the the nature of the of the actions, but also in order to broadcast, you have to have a lot of a certain kind of knowledge. Right. About the technology and uh, about your audience and so forth. So it's also a matter of specialized knowledge. Okay. You know, that would be true of me. I mean, when I'm not philosophizing, I, I still have my knowledge of philosophy up sure. somewhere. Okay, I and, hear you. And <laughs> I'm glad, like, I'm quite enjoying the technical aspect of this uh, interview. Um, uh, and we'll get some feedback as, as well on if people like to f get into the kind of nitty gritty. Because philosophy can sort of be something that people see as oh, I like this idea, or I like the way that can, Kant conceptualized it. I might not agree with them, but, but I, kinda, I, I, I like that as an idea, or, or, you, or Mel, or when you're looking at ethics. Um, you might, you, but to actually talk about, to not just make... Uh, Rand described as her philosophy as a philosophy for living in, on planet Earth. So we're not just uh, talking about these ideas as some kind of intellectual entertainment, but actually right. as, um, as a way to um, actually find out the truth about the world we're living in. So these kind of things, uh, it might seem a silly question, but asking, you know, am, am I a broadcaster when I'm not broadcasting? Hmm. There may actually be a value to that. And on that subject, I'd like to return to morality because morality is something that I think most people think that is at best intersubjective. And it's very hard mm -hmm. to, to objectively prove a code of morality. Now, clues in the title, people, you know, objectivism, as an objectivist, Rand believed that morality is objective. Um, despite what people may think, what they may wish, uh, and so forth, whether you like it or not, it is as it is. And how did she reach that conclusion, which is a very controversial one, and as she uh, complained, most of hmm. philosophy seemed in her day to be dedicated to tearing down the idea that mm. you could make moral prescriptions, you know, post-moral, oh, it's all just a matter of opinion. Um, and then uh, after saying that, they would make a bunch of prescriptions for how the state had to step in and do this and that and the other. So, uh, and at a risk of having just led with a massive rant, please take the floor and uh, <laughs> teach us, can we, uh, I'm desperate to do this because as a, as a libertarian, I, I want to uh, tell people that free markets are moral and uh, it's an, uh, and it's not just a matter of aesthetics. Um, so if you could help us make that case, that would be awesome. Please do. Well, it goes back to what I was saying uh, before about um, the objective basis of the concept of value. I mean, morality is about values. And so if you can take, find what it is in reality, that uh, that is the basis for a concept of value, and then you have the basis of an objective morality. Now, I, what I was describing earlier is the very, very, very fundamental level uh, of life. Every organism has, faces this alternative, or life or death, 
and it has to act to preserve its life, unlike a stone or uh, a drop of water. So then we get to the question, okay, so what does it have to do? Well, every species has a different set of, of needs and a different set of capacities for meeting those needs. So now let's turn to human nature. Uh, and the central fact, um, and this is not <laughs> unique to Rand by any means, um, is our, our rational faculty, our, our capacity for, for thinking. And what are the consequences of that? Well, as I said before, um, it, uh, reason is a faculty of the individual. So individuals need to be able to act on their own thinking. Um, and the idea of objectivity plays in here because um, anyone's knowledge is contextual. It depends on your background of knowledge. If we talk long enough, there's only one reality, so mm -hmm. we should come to agree. But we're mm -hmm. all coming at we are coming at it from different perspectives, yeah. which are not subjective, but they are perspectival. Um, and so, if people need the freedom to act on their on their own perception and grasp of reality, and on the the goals that they that they um, think will best serve their lives. Mm. So, uh, now that leaves a wide scope of choices open. Mm -hmm. what kind of work you do work is work is important we have to produce in order to sustain our lives um, but what kind of work we do and and especially within a um, uh, complex division of labor economy like the ones we live mm -hmm. in now um, there are many many choices and that will depend on your your particular interests your your talents your abilities and your opportunities uh, and so people will differ there we can say that, and this is a more complex argument, but um, for a being that is self-conscious, visibility from others, mm. including friendship and, and love, um, is an important value. Yeah. Um, you, you won't die immediately if you don't get it, but, <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it enriches life in ways that, you know, I, we all know. I mean, mm -hmm. every popular song is about love. Okay. Finding it, losing it, you know complaining about it uh, but each of us has a different unique personality and spiritual um, self-concept identity um, and whom we fall in love with or whom we um, find friendship with is gonna vary so there's again there's lots of opportunities but to say, to say that work is a value mm -hmm. like or, or love is a value to pick two examples mm -hmm. now at, to work this out in detail I'm, I'm giving you really a quick cook's tour. Um, a colleague of mine, William Thomas, and I um, have a book that is um, on our website. It's called The Logical Structure of Objectivism. And starting from life as a fundamental value, we try to show how each of these values I've been talking about, and many more, are can be derived. So. Um, on that basis and on the basis of what we know about human nature, including the economics and, and our social nature. Right, so you took Anne Rand's basic uh, ideas which you can uh, explain to laypersons and you put them in to syllogisms and ph philosophical structures. Yes, um, 
I do, I do want to clarify for those who <clears throat> um, are conversant with logic, syllogisms are a form of deductive reasoning. Right. And there, one, one myth about Ayn Rand is that she started with A as A and everything got deduced from there mm. um, in some a priori way. That's not the case. Um, there is a structure mm. so that, for example, um, uh, the, the reason production is such a value it traces back partly to the fact that we're rational. We, mm. can, uh, we can create, we can envision a kind of value that just didn't exist in reality before right. and then figure out how to produce it and then produce it and we've, got, we've increased our, our wealth. Right, and, um, with machines so, and things. Right, so there is a connection between the fundamental and the more derivative, but uh, uh, um, you don't get to the derivative just by syllogisms. You have to look at reality and engage in inductive observations, uh, generalizations okay. about, about, you know, what, what properties human beings actually have, what capacities they actually have, how do they work. Right. So, as, and, and it's amazing to me that it's, like, for me, if I can just put Rand's ethics in that quote, um, man has a right to live for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor others to themselves. And this, uh, it seems so intuitive to me. It's like, do, right, do you have a, a right to live for your own sake, right? If not, then what are you doing here? Why aren't you in Africa doing some relief work? Why are you arguing? You know, why are you even debating with this with me if you don't agree that you have a right <laughs> to live for your own sake? And yet, this is I know, and Rand, it's it's Rand's use of the word selfish. I think is out of context with most people's usage. Uh, what would be more accurate in most people's usage is, well, I would say self. Um, sorry, altruism. She means self-sacrifice, selfishness. Yes, yeah, self-interest. Uh, but I understand why she used those terms because communists don't say, um, well, communism is a philosophy of self-sacrifice. They say it's an altruistic philosophy, right. um, so, which is why she used that term. But if someone is going to come along and tell you that you don't have the right to live for your own sake and you should serve others, them, you should serve them, you should have, <laughs> someone else should have to work for me, then who's the selfish one by uh, the, the regular person's usage or metric of the word selfish? And sorry, I'm going to go off on one here, but I, recently, a few weeks ago, I was arguing with some uh, leftists on Facebook, as you do, and because <laughs> I'm an economics enthusiast, I was really, I was arguing from basically the perspective of, you know, these interventions in the economy do have negative effects on the poor. And I am a bit of a bleeding heart, call me an altruist, you know, I, I do actually care about these things. I think most people do, I think even most objectivists do. But at some point, you know, the, the, their complete lack of regard for industry, uh, and by that I mean rigor, you know, for achievement and conscientiousness irritated me and it suddenly struck me why is it that I have to argue why someone should be able to keep what they themselves have earned or produced 
or produced mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of its greater benefit from society. And it was in that moment where I really came to appreciate firsthand what the contribution of Rand was to liberty. Because, you know, she might have criticised Adam Smith for arguing for free markets on altruistic grounds. But I was like, uh -huh. wow, you know, why, why am I going to all these lengths to say, oh no, you shouldn't distribute the wealth because it'll reduce the amount of production and then there'll be less goods, so the goods will be more expensive, so poor people will suffer. That is all true. But, you know, they earned it. Don't they have the right to keep it? <laughs> what else do you think are the unique contributions of Rand to the philosophy of liberty? How did you like that segue? Well, I did like the segue. Can I just back yeah, up a little do, bit there? Because do. obviously what someone on the left would say was like, okay, you've earned all this stuff. But the only reason you were able to earn it is because, I don't know, when you were young, uh, uh, people looked after you, you got medical attention, you got education, um, you benefited from a society that was safe and there was police and there was all these things that contributed to why you were then able to go on and earn these things. So you owe a little something back. Tell them, David. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, that is a very, very common argument. Yeah. It's uh, typically uh, put forward by communitarians like in, our, in my country, uh, our uh, previous president used to make exactly that argument, yeah. that famous phrase, you didn't build that, uh, speaking to the entrepreneurs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, but the answer is, um, yes, I benefited from mm -hmm. lots of things. Uh, my parents, first and foremost, okay? um, my teachers, and uh, yes, the police. Mm -hmm. But my, my parents um, weren't sacrificing themselves to have me as a child. <laughs> uh, if you even suggested that to my mother. But they may have made sacrifices, though. They, well, you know, we have to be clear about the word sacrifice. Yeah. Sacrifice, in one sense, it just means, you know, every action has opportunity costs. There are the things you don't do. So you... You know, but it's not a it's not a sacrifice in the moral sense. If you give up something of lesser value for something of higher value, um, when but when you give up yourself, when you sacrifice yourself, uh, that's yeah. you know there's nothing higher. Okay. So, um, but going back to the to the point, how how exactly? I mean, take take some woman. Um, uh, elderly woman on social security in um, uh, Arizona. What did she do for me? When they say society, you got all these benefits from society. Well, what is society? It's just individuals under a common um, framework of law yeah. and in a common economy, yes. But I don't owe her anything. I don't know any of those people anything because either it was parental love mm -hmm. or it got paid for yeah. and besides okay. uh, no. it's yeah. not you who put her in the situation where she's in welfare if you had then maybe you'd be liable to pay damages well sure yes and that's the way it should work um, if I'm responsible for someone's um, loss or um, incapacity then 
you know, that's the law will, will should hold me responsible. But um, what 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 something like Social Security does or any retirement system is it collectivizes. Uh, first of all, it nationalizes um, uh, uh, retirement savings, that whole business. It takes mm-hmm. money out involuntarily and puts it and then you get paid involuntarily. Um, and of course, it's not your own money that you get back. It's the next generations. Yeah. Because um, these are never actually invested, um, but that gets into the nitty-gritty of how those um, welfare programs work. The but the point is um, that that communitarian argument is treats society as this single unit that has done things for me. Yeah. But society is not a unit that engages in action. It's a it's a collective noun or a concept for all of us individuals living together in a certain way. And what way is that? Well, our view is by trade mm. and by voluntary benevolence. Sure. Which brings me back to another thing, and we should say this. Um, Rand, when she used the word selfish, people, um, you're quite right that people have a concept of what that means. It means nasty. Um, self-centered, um, uh, narcissistic, yeah. things like that. Not at all what she meant, mm-hmm. uh, not her concept of self-interest. And on the other hand, when they say, no, you should be altruist, um, what a lot of people really mean is you should be a little benevolent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're in a position to help someone uh, and that person is you know, has some capacity, you can help them get through an emergency or give a student, you know, a break to uh, realize his potential. You know, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. It's not a duty, but it is bad. Yes. That's what I like. You know, the idea that, it, you know, it's a value. It's not a duty because as soon as you make it a duty, it's ugly. Yeah. You know? So Anything- in other words... So the communist idea of altruism would be to compel people to do that which is against their own self-interest in order to benefit a greater collective. But be, the exactly. Com- yeah, yeah. That, and that's I mean, what she it, was against. Absolutely, absolutely. And that it, the communists were quite clear about that. You live live for the state. Yeah. Of course, they don't say that anymore. Now they say that wasn't real communism. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, but there was a time where that that was fashionable to say. So, what apart from the this radical notion that you know, um, you're just born onto this planet, you know, where do people get this idea that just by being born here you somehow have a duty to anything that isn't um, voluntarily agreed upon, you know? It's the, 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 uh, that's what I kind of want to say, um, Hume's uh, law. How do you get, when someone says you've got a duty to do this or there's a social contract, where do you get your ought from your as? You know, just by me being born here, how do you have the mm-hmm. idea that I have a duty? I will help people as much as I can, but I don't, I mean, I'm a therapist. That's my job. I, I, I mm-hmm. want to help people as much as I can, but I've never seen it as a duty. That's my joy. You know, yeah, you know, right. that's what that's what I want. If I saw it as my duty, I might not love my job. Um, apart from that shocking notion that you shouldn't be a slave to society, um, 
what other notions do you think were particularly valuable for those of us who want to make a case for liberty um, for libertarians? Well, I think another point is the uh, the what Rand called the mind-body dichotomy or the material-spiritual dichotomy. And it it takes many, many different forms, but to talk about your work as a therapist, they would say you were part of a helping profession. Mm -hmm. So they would, that has an altruistic gloss. Same with doctors, same with nurses, same with teachers. Whereas a business executive or an entrepreneur, uh, well, he's, he's pursuing money. So that's less noble. Mm. That's not a helping profession. What Rand said is, no, first of all, every every form of work involves your mind and involves virtues like courage and integrity uh, and dedication, commitment. So uh, that's why the heroes um, in her books and especially Atlas Shrugged mm. um, are, you know, they're they're the, they're not the picture of the um, the fat cats, you know, no. wearing diamond studs. That is the leftist image of yeah. business. No, they're hard. They're they're incredibly passionate about their work and inventive and take go to great lengths to get things done. Um, <clears throat> so, whether all work, anything that creates value, is good, is good, and we don't make invidious distinctions between types of productive labor. Sure. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I was a teacher, and I, why was I a teacher? It was not a sacrifice, because that's what I wanted to do. And um, I, I enjoyed the process. I, I enjoyed working with students and helping them understand material and develop their, their, uh, their thinking skills, and that was very satisfying. It's, uh, that's the way I felt productive. Yeah. Whereas um, someone who's, you know, in accounting really loves getting the numbers right. Sure. And I think Atlas Shrugged did a great job of showing just how simple something like building a railway really can massively improve people's lives or um, creating a, a new alloy. And the thing is, any profitable business, provided they're not uh, getting handouts and preferential legislation from the government by its nature is helping people because otherwise why would they voluntarily exchange their limited resources for whatever that um, business is, is producing so the fact that people are buying it shows that by their judgment it improves their quality of life somewhat um, I guess we could get into grey areas with well as really selling Big Macs is that um, improving people's quality of life well they obviously choose the short term gain of eating a Big Mac over mm -hmm. the long term term gain of health and you have to be quite a, a nanny status to want to go in and start saying oh, 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 they're, well their judgment of what's good for them isn't wrong uh, isn't isn't acceptable what was um, what, yeah, the, what was your own path to objectivism um, well it was kind of interesting um, I was uh, I discovered Ayn Rand in high school. Okay. Um, I was, I guess, about 15, probably 15. And my family uh, belonged to a Protestant church. It was not, a, we're not a highly religious family, but they belonged to a church. Okay. 
and um, so I was in a um, so cult went culturally culturally Christian, so to speak. Yes, um, exactly right, and um, so somehow you're going through a confirmation class when I was fourteen or fifteen, and then also it, it just in school, I found my mind always gravitated toward what what's the underlying idea here? What's the and at a certain point, I became one of those um, obnoxious, uh, uh, contrarian teenagers, <laughs> challenging everything. And prove it's it, never prove changed it. Why do you believe then. it? <laughs> it's never changed. So um, I, uh, but I, I was, I had come to a couple of conclusions that it, 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 I couldn't see any other reason, uh, ultimate goal in life, besides happiness. That was the only thing that made it seemed intrinsically valuable um and that's about as far as i got in uh, at that you know to that point and then um i was in um a discussion actually it was at church the um the youth minister gave us something to read he said this is an author this is back in the 60s um this is an author who's become very um prominent and and controversial and he handed out something. It it turned out to be from the Fountainhead part of um, Rourke's speech at his okay. trial. Yeah. And I I but I read that it was like a page and a half uh, mimeograph. If anyone remembers what yeah. that is, <laughs> you know, a copy. And I said, Wow, whoever wrote this is think is thinking in the direction I'm trying to go, but right. it's so much farther down this road. Okay. Um, I just, I was bowled over, and I mean the the discussion was about you know, if, and I, I have to give credit to this youth minister. He said, you know, if Ayn Rand is right, Christianity is wrong, and vice versa. So, but you you should know that these ideas and th think about them. I mean, it was really it, one of the great models in my life of intellectual honesty. Wow, that's awesome. <clears throat> what what what, and, what, what uh, was the conclusion that? It was one or the other. Is it that idea that Christianity would claim there can be no happiness without God? Is it, would, would that be the, the stumbling block there? Or was there something even deeper than that that would make it a dichotomy? No, it was uh, less deep than that, actually, because okay. in the passage from Rourke's speech, yeah. um, it didn't get into religion. No. What it was about was egoism okay. versus altruism. Okay. And so it was Ayn Rand, Howard Rourke, versus the message of Jesus, of, you know, turn the other cheek, you are your brother's keeper. I mean, I, I, okay. I think that phrase comes, okay. well, it goes back to the Old Testament. But anyway, you, you know, you get the idea. And so it, that was the, the point of contrast. Right. So then I, read, I began reading um, her novels. I read The Fountainhead, then I read Atlas Shrugged, and then I, um, she, she was starting to, take essays that were published in the magazine she and Nathaniel Brandon had started, the objectivist, and began collecting them, collecting them into books like The Virtue of Selfishness. So I would read them as soon as they yeah. came out. And so I went to college. I, <laughs> I think I'd read everything up to that point. Um, so and, when I, and just to to finish the story, but I, when I went to college, I, I, I knew I wanted to study philosophy, but I thought, well, you know, I, I've read Ayn Rand, and I 
I've read some other philosophy. I've read some history of philosophy, but I'm probably going to wind up in some different position because, you know, yeah. I, what do I know? Yeah. Um, but none of my professors said anything that even came close, yeah. or even connected. So didn't make a dent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. Yes. Uh, so she she was very rigorous. This is something that I really appreciate about Rand. She it wasn't enough just to think of an idea. She had to go through the whole chain of logic and really argue for an idea. And uh, I write about economics, and I kind of strive to that not just explain a concept, but in such a line of thought that you can go, that just by reading it, you can go, yeah, that makes sense, that follows, and I think that's something she was very good at. And did you spend some time around her? Um, not very much. I did meet her in the 70s after getting out of graduate school and uh, had a few conversations. I knew Leonard Peikoff much better. And some of the other people who are um, were around at that time, right. many still are. Uh, but right. yeah, I did meet her, and um, I mean, as it happened, uh, and it, this is a, a chain of sort of accidental circumstances. But I ended up reading a poem at her funeral. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. uh, the, the poem uh, Rudyard Kipling's "If." Right. Her favorite. Excellent. Yeah. 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 Oh, lovely. Um, is there? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to depart from your train of thought, but um, when you were saying you hung around with the, you know, that those circles, and some of them are still with us, um, and let's get to the the bet noir. Um, Alan <laughs> Alan Greenspan, what went wrong? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh... <laughs> I mean, did, did did he just um, did he just completely sell out, or did he just say, "This is a, you can't beat this thing. I might as well join it." Or I mean, go figure. What happened? Uh, I honestly don't know. I've I've I I don't know. Because he I was an acolyte. Would that be would that be correct to call him an acolyte, or was he just an acolyte? Well, he was, he was in. Um, he was in what was called the the collective, you know, okay. the circle around Rand as she was Strange writing. Strange name and, for, uh, for uh, something that's connected yeah. to that Rand, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, <clears throat> and um, stayed in touch uh, in in the seventies. Gerald Ford, uh, when he was president, appointed Greenspan head of his Council of Economic Advisors, and Rand went down. Very proud of him, went down to um, the ceremony, uh, and. <clears throat> I, I think it, I suspected it started uh, with Greenspan by, you know, wanting to have an impact. And he knew he had good ideas and, you know, if he yeah. could have some influence, they could maybe help with that. After that, I don't know, because um, he, a lot's been written and there's a lot of internal debate in, among objectivists um, about about all that. Yeah, I know your people. personal theory? No. <laughs> I, I really don't like, I don't like to speculate mm. um, about um, somebody's you know, motivation. About psychology unless, yeah. Yeah, yeah. unless I have okay. Well, really good I remember uh, Brandon saying he was a pretty hard sell on, uh, on objectivism and he had some ideas like um, 
he like some radical skeptic ideas and Rand had said uh, I don't even know why you're you're trying to convert someone who doesn't even know for sure that you exist uh, again <laughs> I'm hearing this through the grapevine and and but Brandon stuck with it and convinced him so maybe if someone's difficult to can to to pull in then they're they'll be easy to to pull out again <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the case and um, I, I was as a therapist you know uh, I was uh, um, sad to hear of Nathaniel Brandon's death a couple of years ago were you fam familiar with him yes and uh, yeah I knew Nathaniel we had him speak at our conferences quite often um, and up until a few years before he he passed away um, he was getting you know just mm -hmm. too old and weak to, but yeah I knew him I you know reasonably well mm. we talked and um, 